Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. You know, uh, when a baby arrives, first shows up on the scene, it's been my experience that they tend to be uh, the center of attention. And that makes sense uh, to a certain extent. Um, to put them at the, the center of all conversations, to focus on them first and foremost. I mean, uh, there's been anticipation of waiting for this baby to show up. Uh, they, they tend to be the most vulnerable person in, in whatever room they might find themselves in. So it makes sense to put them at the center, to adjust accordingly in light of uh, the needs or the wants or whatever it might be of, of a, a, a newborn. But sometimes... Uh, that adjustment doesn't happen, or maybe it doesn't happen as quickly or as smoothly uh, as it should. Uh, Like I've shared with you all before, I am an oldest child, and so that meant that for the first four years of my life, I was the absolute center of the universe. I mean, I was my parents' first child. On my dad's side of the family, I was the first grandchild, and I was the first great-grandchild. I mean, it it all revolved around me. Uh, if you were to look through uh, pictures of me the first four years of my life, you might think, did Monty's grandma ever not have a camera in her hand? Um, because it's probably a fair question to ask once you look at, look at all of those pictures. But then, a few months after I turned four years old, uh, things began to change. I brought a picture today that actually shows that, that change in real time, if you know what you're looking at. So that is a picture from uh, not long after my sister was born, either the day she was born or the day after. Uh, on the right uh, half of the, of the picture there, you can see my grandparents, my mom's parents, my grandpa's holding my newborn sister, my grandma is looking over him, looking at their newest grandchild, and I'm there in the corner looking at the camera. <laughs> I'm the only one in the picture even aware that a picture is being taken, as you can see. And I don't, you know, remember um, this picture being taken necessarily, but I think I can see what's happening. Because up to that point in my life, I had never seen a camera that wasn't being used for the sake of taking my picture. And so it just made sense. A camera came out. Obviously, it's about me. I should, I should look at the camera and, and smile. Uh, but that was changing. My sister had ruined it. Or, I probably shouldn't have said it that way. Uh, things were changing. I just hadn't figured it out yet. There was a new center of attention. Uh, there was a new... And at that point, my focus was not in the same place as everyone else's. As we enter into the second week of our series preparing for the celebration of the birth of Christ, we're going to look at the birth of a child this morning. Not the birth of Jesus, we'll get to him in due time, but we're going to look at the birth of another, the birth of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was born a few months before Jesus, and like Jesus, his birth was highly anticipated. The last two verses of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, say, I will send the prophet Elijah to you. Before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, 
He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. The Old Testament ends on this note, looking forward to a time when God would send a prophet, would send someone who was like Elijah, and that figure would come and would prepare the way for the arrival of God himself. And the Old Testament ends, and God goes silent. Uh, my guess is that if you're holding a physical Bible either here, or either now or at some other time, if you were to look between the end of the book of Malachi and the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, there's some kind of blank page, some sort of divider of some sort that lets you know that you're moving from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And that one page represents 400 years. Four centuries where God is silent. And, and yet, just because God is silent does not mean that nothing is happening. It does not mean there is nothing going on among God's people. There is upheaval. Uh, there are foreign nations coming in, conquering uh, the land of Israel, sending God's people into exile to go live in other places. Uh, the people get to return to the land, but they're still living under foreign oppression. There are bigger and stronger armies rolling in and, and taking out the armies that are oppressing the land of Israel, but they continue to oppress. Uh, there's rebellions. The land of Israel trying to assert their own freedom. Sometimes they're successful, sometimes they're not. And through it all, Uh, that statement at the end of the Old Testament still lingers. When is God going to speak? When is God going to send this person he he told us would come? When will this figure like Elijah show up who will prepare the way for God's arrival? When will God's people experience peace? True peace, not just the, the conflict, not just uh, the, the, the uh, ridding of foreign armies. When will we have true, lasting peace? God getting what God wants, all of creation functioning as God created it to function. And then we start reading the Gospel of Luke, and we learn about this priest named Zechariah. Uh, We're told Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are are childless and that they're both very old. And carrying out uh, his duties as a priest, Zechariah is selected to be the one, the one priest who will burn incense within the temple. Probably a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And while he is serving, an angel appears to him while he's in the temple tells him that he and his wife are going to have a child in their old age and that this child is going to be a prophet that leads God's people back to him. Zechariah and Elizabeth are going to give birth to this messenger Malachi was looking forward to. Zechariah is stunned by this. He asks, how would this even be possible? And because of his doubts, the angel proclaims Zechariah will be silent until... The words that have been spoken over him are fulfilled. And that's what happens. 
Zechariah walks out of the temple that day, unable to speak. The crowd, worshiping outside the temple while he is carrying out his duties, are, are unsure of what to make of all of this, trying to figure out what is going on. They piece together that whatever has happened, he must have seen a vision from God. And then the text tells us that Elizabeth becomes pregnant. And just as God had been silent for those 400 years, Zechariah is silent for the duration of the pregnancy, anticipating this day when this child will be born. And when that day finally arrives, Zechariah speaks, a sign that God is speaking through this child and his words at the birth of his son that he's been anticipating are the words we're unpacking this morning. And yet, like me at the birth of my sister, what we see when we open up this text is that the focus is not where we might expect it to be. I mean, Zachariah has waited his entire adult life to have a child. And now that it has finally happened, he has had nine months of silence to think, to prepare for what his words were going to be, what he was going to say at the birth of this child. And, and you would think he would have all sorts of, of things to say about the birth of his son. And yet what we find in his word is that his focus is elsewhere. His focus is not on the birth of his own son. His focus is on what God is doing. And we'll look at the first portion of this text. This is Zechariah uh, speaking about the promise that had been made. And then in the second half, we'll see how this promise is coming to fulfillment before his very eyes. So I'm going to read from Luke 1, verses 68 to 75 for us. Zechariah says, Praise be to the Lord the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. As you can see, those words are not concerned all that much with John the Baptist. And that might strike us as a little odd. I mean, if you were in the waiting room at the hospital as a friend or family member was giving birth to their first child and the father was, came out to the waiting room to everyone waiting there and and began talking about how the Lord has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David, you might start wondering what was going on back there behind those doors. Or if you were scrolling social media one day and you saw a post from a friend who, who just had a baby and they posted this picture of this newborn and it was adorable and then you started reading the caption and the, the caption under the picture said, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. You might, you might have some questions about what's going through the mind of this person as they look at their child. And yet, even though Zachariah and Elizabeth have been longing for a child for the entirety of their marriage, and they are seeing that come to fulfillment in front of their very eyes, they also recognize that that is not the most important thing taking place. This is not just the birth of a child. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of God doing what he had promised that he would do for his people. From the moment sin entered the world, back in Genesis chapter 3, the story of the Old Testament has been longing for a 
time when God would show up and put right what had gone wrong. And God begins that process of setting the entire world right by calling one nation to be his people. That begins in Genesis chapter 12. God calls Abram to leave his homeland and go where God would call him to go, promising that if he did so, he would be blessed and all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. Abram has his name changed to Abraham. His descendants come to be known as the nation of Israel, and God reveals himself to that nation through his law, showing them how they are to live as people, and when they do that, they will be a light to the rest of the world. And yet, they're not faithful to that calling. They worship other gods. They neglect the calling God had given them. And yet, despite their unfaithfulness, God does not abandon his people. He continues to send prophets, calling his people back into relationship with him, even when their sin and their unfaithfulness leads them to being sent to exile in foreign lands. He continues to reach out to them, continues to pursue them, continues to tell them that things will not be like this forever. One day the exile will end. Not just end in the sense that God's people can live in the land God had promised to give them, but will end because God will send someone who will set all things right, who will redeem his people into life with him. And from that redemption, the same message of hope would go out into all, so that all people could have a relationship with this God. And as Zechariah looks at the birth of his son, he proclaims that that is what is taking place. The verses we've just read are, are steeped in language from the Old Testament. Like God had promised he would do in the Old Testament, he has come to redeem his people, and he will do that as he has promised through the line of King David. He's raised up a horn of salvation, which is language out of the Old Testament demonstrating power. If you think about it, animals with horns tend to be animals that are stronger, have more power can defend themselves and things like that. And in the same way, God is working in powerful ways to save his people. And that will mean redemption and salvation. It will mean fulfillment of the covenant God had established with Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed. The work of God will mean redemption and will mean freedom for God's people. And even with all that background, at least for me, these words are still a little strange. I mean, for one, almost all the verbs Zechariah uses in these verses we've just read are verbs that describe completed actions. We can even see that in our English translations. God has come and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation. I mean, those are all past tense verbs. A farmer doesn't say, we've had a great harvest this year as they're putting the seeds in the ground. A student doesn't say, I got straight A's this semester on the first day of classes. You didn't say, boy, this was a great meal as you were sitting down to eat Thanksgiving meal a couple weeks ago. So why does Zechariah look at this newborn son and start speaking of all the things this son will be a part of in the future as if they have already happened? And not only that, like we've already talked about, why is Zechariah not leading by talking about his own son? I mean, Zechariah is a priest, which means that he, and by extension his son, are from the tribe of Levi. And he's talking about this descendant of King David, David from the tribe of Judah. So 
whoever Zechariah is talking about here, he can't be talking about his own family. So if all that's the case, then what is Zechariah getting at with these verses? If I can try to boil everything down into a two-part statement, I think it might be this. That John's the beginning, and the rest will happen because God is faithful. The arrival of John the Baptist is an important piece of the story, but it is not the entire story. John comes to prepare the way for the one who will come after him, who, as John himself will say, is far more powerful than he is. And that reality shouldn't cause us to minimize the importance of John the Baptist. It should cause us to marvel all the more at the one who is to come after him because he is the one all of this is building towards. Later, uh, in the third chapter of the Gospel of John, some followers of John the Baptist are getting a little uneasy uh, because as Jesus begins to preach and teach more and more, he's gaining more and more followers and is starting to become more popular than John the Baptist is. And they come to John and ask him what is going on with that. And John the Baptist says to his disciples in John 3.30, the words you can see on the screen, he must become greater, I must become less. As important as John the Baptist is, this story was never about him. Even at his birth, his own father is more concerned with the bigger picture of what God is doing. Because that story involves John, but ultimately it involves God himself coming to earth to restore all things, to bring the salvation he had promised to bring to his people. And even at this point, months before Jesus is born, Zechariah can speak as if all this has has been completed because of his knowledge of the faithfulness of God. God has been faithful in fulfilling his promise that Zechariah and Elizabeth would have a son. And that demonstration of faithfulness is a small down payment on the fulfillment to come with the birth of Jesus. And the result of all of what God, of the response to all that God has done is worship. Worship's always our response. To what God has done. If you look there at the end of verse 74, it says, In light of all that God has done, we have been, able, been enabled to serve Him without fear. God's people have been set free to serve. At first glance, that might sound strange. That's, that's not what we signed up for. Our culture defines freedom as the ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want. So the statement that God sets us free to serve almost sounds like God's pulling a bait and switch on us. Like God's promising you freedom, and then he says, congratulations, you have freedom, now you have to do exactly what I tell you to do all the time. And that's not what this verse is saying. That word, translated serve there, in verse 74, is a word for worship. This is not serve in the sense of feigning God with a palm branch and, and feeding him grapes or something like that, but offering him praise in response to what he has done for us. That is what true freedom looks like. God created us for life with him. He has redeemed us so that we can experience that life, and therefore we praise him for who he is, for what he's done, and for what he is doing. That's the focus of this song from Zechariah, calling God's people to praise him for who he is, for what he's done, and for what he is doing. And it gets fleshed out a little more in the rest of this passage as the focus shifts. It's made 
to how that promise is being fulfilled. The work of God brings peace, and that peace leads us to praise. But we see as Zechariah continues that he is working out what that peace looks like. It is not just the absence of conflict. It is God's peace. All creation functioning as it should under God's rule because God has redeemed all things. And again, John plays a part in that, but his focus is far bigger. It involves all people, even you and me. So let's read the last few verses of this passage, verses 76 to 79. Again, Zechariah speaking, he says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. At this time of year, we are not just celebrating the birth of Jesus, but we are celebrating that in Jesus, God's plan to set all things right is put in motion. This time of year is not just a time to put uh, trees up in our living rooms and hang lights up and give gifts and get together with, with family and everything else that goes on this time of year. I don't have anything against any of that. Absolutely do all of those things over the next few weeks. But do them with a knowledge of the fact that it is a response to the fact that Jesus was born on this earth to make all things new. That's the foundational truth this time of year. That is the one thing that overshadows everything else. Jesus comes to set the entire world right, to put an end to sin and death and injustice and pain and suffering. That is what we celebrate this time of year. And if we settle for anything less than that, We've missed the point of Christmas. And to explain that significance, Zechariah uses all these images to describe what the arrival of Jesus will be like. He says, Jesus will bring knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. He comes to demonstrate to us once and for all that we have been saved into life with God. If you have ever wondered if you are okay with God, if you've done enough for him to truly love you and accept you, if he actually is able to forgive what you have done, that is absolutely possible because of Christ. His life, death, and resurrection, not anything great in us, means we can say confidently that we have been saved from sin into life with God. Not because we have a lot to offer God, but because of the love of God poured out on us in Christ. And that salvation is delivered because of the tender mercy of God. And I think both words there are, imper- are important. Mercy on its own is just not receiving what you deserve. And tenderness, or maybe a better way to translate that Greek word would be compassion, doesn't accomplish a whole lot just on its own. But those two together, tender mercy not treating us as our sins deserve, while at the same time treating us with compassion and tenderness is what we need in order to truly experience healing. And that core of God's character is what we see revealed in the coming of Jesus. 
His arrival brings us light in the darkness, deliverance from death. It guides us into the path of peace, God's peace. And that's what we need at the Christmas season. We do not just need warm, fuzzy feelings as we sip hot chocolate next to a fireplace. We don't need Christmas cheer that comes from feeling a little better about ourselves because we put some spare change in a bucket as we walked out of the grocery store. Again, I don't have anything against any of that. I absolutely do those things over the next few weeks, but if that's all we focus on between now and the end of the year, we have missed it. We need more from Christmas. We need a rising sun from heaven to show us the way out of the darkness of our world. We need one who is more powerful than death itself to come and save us from that which we cannot save ourselves. We need the peace that is only available in Jesus' arrival. And that sort of peace is far better than any peace we might find in the world. Most of the time we define peace as the absence of conflict. We define it as everyone putting aside their differences long enough to be able to shake hands for a photo op. Jesus has come to bring us something better. Not just the absence of hostility between us and God, between us and others around us. He's come to bring us all things functioning in the way that God created them to function. Jesus does not come to defeat the people that we don't like. Zechariah does not praise God in these verses because he's come to get rid of the Roman Empire that's currently oppressing God's people. He praises God because Jesus is coming to get rid of sin and death. And those are the enemies we truly need defeated. We don't need salvation, redemption from anything else before we need salvation from sin. We don't need any sort of life improvement here on this earth before we need the assurance that death itself has been defeated, that there is more to life than the end of our time on this earth. And in Christ, we can know that that is the case. With so much in this passage concerned with who God is and what he's done, what he is doing, that might leave us wondering where we find ourselves in this passage. Uh, what's, what do we do? What's the application? What's the, what, how are we supposed to live in light of all of this? I think we find ourselves in this passage there in verses 74 and 75. And we've been enabled to serve Him, to serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. That is our response to what Christ has done as we walk in the way of peace that he's created for us. That's what we celebrate this time of year. We'll probably hear a lot of talk over the next few weeks about Christmas spirit. And I don't have anything against Christmas spirit, but as followers of Jesus, my plea is that we remember we are not just talking about a general feeling that is over everyone this time of year that for some inexplicable reason makes us all be a little nicer. The spirit of Christmas is celebrating the fact Christ has come and has begun the process of making all things new. And the celebration of that fact is what brings us true, lasting peace. Christ comes as the fulfillment of the promises God has made in the past to bring us a foretaste of peace in the present as we look forward to the day when he will return and make all things new. And as we live in the meantime, looking forward to that day when all things 
are made right. We live with the knowledge that God has set us free so that we might worship Him and we might find life in Him. He has come to bring us freedom for all time. And in response to that, we worship. Let's pray. God, you're good to us. And when we rebelled against you, you sent your Son so that we might have life with you. And we thank you for the confidence we can express that because you've been faithful in the past, we can know that you're faithful now and you will be faithful in the future. So as we live in the meantime between the first and second coming of Christ, give us confidence. Give us assurance of your presence. Help us to trust in you as we have been enabled by you to to worship, to serve you without fear and holiness and righteousness all our days. May our our thoughts, our actions, everything we do over the next few weeks be aligned with your purposes, your purposes in our lives and our communities and the world around us. May we trust in you and you alone and experience your goodness for ourselves and offer that to a world around us that needs to hear it. And it's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.